WTTM 235. This podcast is a member of the Friends of the Magic family of podcasts. For information about this show and others like it, please visit friendsofthemagic.com and click on the podcasts link on the main page. You're listening to the Window to the Magic com podcast brought to you by window to the magic.com surround yourself with the magic hello and welcome to a window to the magic My name is Paul, and as always, I will be your guide through the wonderful world of Disney sound experiences. This show is an audio trip through the world of the Disney theme parks and resorts, and this is the place where you get to use your ears to surround yourself with the magic. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode number 235 of A Window to the Magic. Brought to you by Carl Sussman's hilarious new book, Love Your Geek, Michael Mofoda's Bluestone Creative Group, the Window to the Magic podcast app, and by listeners like you, subscribers to the Window to the Magic DVD of the Month Club. Please visit windowtothemagic.com for more information. This week, I bring to you a conversation that I had just this last Saturday, April 17th, with J.B. Kaufman and Russell Merritt, the authors of Walt in Wonderland. This conversation took place immediately following J.B.'s wonderful lecture on the making of Pinocchio in the Fantasia Theater at the Walt Disney Family Museum. All right, everyone, welcome to the Walt Disney Family Museum in the beautiful Presidio in San Francisco, California. I am out here on the patio. You'll be able to hear cars going by in the distance and whatever. I am seated here with Leo Holzer, my uh, uh, friend and uh, and co-host occasionally on the show. Uh, I am here with Russell Merritt and Mr. J.B. Kaufman. Now, Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman, I believe, got together on a book just a little bit ago. Um, that was? Bit. That's right. Just a bit. And, uh, and they let us get away with it. Really? Yeah. All right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the book? It was Walt in Wonderland. It's a study of Walt's uh, silent film career that extended from the very early 20s up through Mickey Mouse. Oh, very nice. And then we did a second one together about the Silly Symphonies, um, which, uh, as you know, (laughs) takes off immediately after that and and, uh, goes on through the end of the 30s. In fact, the impetus was that we really wanted to start with the Silly Symphonies and with Mickey Mouse and 30s, and then it occurred to us you really couldn't do a book on that without knowing where that came from. Was this a reaction against what he was doing as a silent film director and producer, or was it an extension? So then we looked around and discovered no one had done anything on the silent Walt that could answer those questions. So we figured, oh, why don't we spend a few months and uh, research that? And of course, that turns out to be whole lot of fun in its own right, and, and it was especially fun for us because it hadn't been explored before, so we got to be the ones that, that delved into it. And, uh, and of course, it turns out that uh, the Disney silent films are kind of a wonderful sub-category of Disney's career in their own right, uh, all the more fascinating because they haven't been 
uh, done to death by others. So you, d you didn't do a book about the silent films and then you were so tired of being quiet that you did something about one that was just music? Um, that's not exactly what happened, but we can, we can put it that way. Well, you can put it that way? All right. We've always been uncomfortable being quiet. <laughs> as, as have I. So in these, in these books, uh, what, di what did you discover? What was the grand discovery of, uh, of them? I think the first most important discovery was how much that we assume got started with sound was in fact in evidence from the very beginning and how those strains that you find in Disney of endless improvisation and exploration can be found in evidence. There's no question about it that there's a sharp learning curve that you wouldn't, ex you wouldn't confuse what you found in the early 20s with what you're going to find in the early 30s. He's a very fast learner. And also, that there's no doubt, but that sound is a catalyst for brand new directions. But um, we discovered, I think, rather early that these were more than just training films. He, it's the work of a man who is primarily struggling to get a toehold and an unusually ruthless, um, uh, rather unrespectable neighborhood within the film industry and that what you're watching is how clever he is and how many mistakes he makes in trying to get that toehold. All of those mistakes are, are great moments in film though, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, uh, because the mistakes tend to be business decisions, business mistakes. I mean, how many times he goes nearly bankrupt and nearly has to give up uh, is part of the story. But the other part of the story is his absolute genius for intuiting talent. Um, I like to say that when you consider who he discovers in Kansas City, you are left with one of two alternatives. Either there's something in Kansas City water that produces the likes of Ub Iwerks, Carl Stalling, and animator after animator, or there's somebody there who is able to bring out extraordinary talent. And, and guess which conclusion we came to. <laughs> mm. <laughs> really, when you get down to Kansas City, the whole animation as we know it, uh, not just Disney, but Warner Brothers as well, uh, grew out of Kansas City. It's, it's, it's been called the cradle of American animation, yeah. and uh, there, there are reasons for that. There's, there's another kind of discovery we made. These, of course, are silent films, but you discover a kind of intuition for music and rhythm and tempo in Disney that is quite unusual for animation in the silent period. Long before Mickey Mouse, Disney cartoons know how to jive. They know how to, uh, how to play off music, even when they have no control over what kind of music is being played. There's lots of opportunity for a musician to riff off what he sees on a Disney screen. Now that's that's because they at at the time of the silent films they were be having the music played uh, improvisationally yeah. on on organs in the theater, right? That's right. That's right. And and in fact, uh, Walt managed to undercut one of the assumptions that I had always had about Disney films. One of my soapboxes about about uh, uh, Steamboat Willie had always been that it's 
it's significant because it makes such brilliant intuitive use of sound and that it has gags in it that could only be done with sound in which sound is not just something tacked on to the gag right uh, it is it's basic to the gag and my favorite illustration of that always was the goat swallowing the sheet music and then and then Minnie cranks his tail and he becomes uh, an organ with, or, or a hand organ with the with the music coming out of his mouth that was always my favorite illustration because that's a gag that could only be done with sound well guess what no Walt did it in a silent film a few months earlier the same year. Really? Yeah, in, in an Oswald the Rabbit cartoon called Rival Romeo's, exactly the same gag. If, no, but my, and my only add-on to that is it's happening in Kansas City to begin with, which is this musical giant of a, of a town. Mm -hmm. Now, that particular cartoon wasn't done in Kansas City, but this is a man who's coming out of Kansas City where everyone from Billy Holiday to Count Basie is uh, running their chops. Interesting. You um, find a lot of use or reuse of gags, especially from the silence even to the early sound films. Um, was that just standard practice by everybody? Um, yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, you stole from yourself, you stole from others, left and right, for the gags. What I think is the defining difference between the silent films and the sound films is that Disney discovers myth and legend for his silly symphonies and for his Mickey Mouse that does take him in a new direction. How an American takes European fairy tales and folklore and Americanizes them is something that has to wait. You see all kinds of evidence that this is about to happen. Uh, but when he's doing uh, Red Riding Hood and uh, the equivalents of Snow White, silent period, they're mainly gag films, uh, modern jazz age reinterpretations of uh, some of those classics. He starts taking it seriously uh, once the depression gets started. Another way of answering that question would be that with any major artist throughout history, whether it's, uh, well, two of my favorites are Johann Sebastian Bach and W.C. Fields. And, and one of the things you notice with both of them, and I'm sure with countless others, is that you do get the same ideas and themes and so on repeated over and over throughout their careers. But, but those are sort of the raw material with which you see them refining their craft and refining what they do. So they become kind of recurring motifs in an artistic career. And, uh, and, and for me, seeing, seeing the birth of those things in Disney's career in the 1920s, is uh, essential for understanding the way they develop later on when he hits his peak in the 1930s and 40s. So those those gags and things that they're using, that's kind of like an artist using blue. They use blue in every painting, but they use it differently every time. So yeah, lapis yeah. lazuli is always there, <laughs> and now it's a discovery of how you can find new uses for it and new combinations for it. But you can find in Pinocchio gags that he's, that he's cultivated in the 20s. If, do you have an example of one of those? Let's see. The one, since I just came from <laughs> these scenes, as you may know, before there were mice, there were cats. And so he is working with gags, 
based on Felix when he creates his own Julius the Cat. And so when you get to Figaro, you discover that there is something left over from, uh, from Julius, himself an extremely derivative character, that has been completely mastered and redefined by the time he gets there. But, the, but one of the prime differences is that Figaro moves in a way that is far beyond anything that a silent cartoon cat can do. But when he starts playing with the fish, when he starts getting jealous of Pinocchio, those are gags that have been seasoned from lots of Alice cartoons. The two of you have probably seen more of silent Disney films than most people on the planet. Um, what are your favorites uh, of that period? Uh, and there's new new films that have been unearthed in just in the last few years. I remember you saying that. Uh, have you seen those? Um, there are still some that I haven't seen, uh, but. In, in some cases, it's it's less a matter of unknown films being uh, rediscovered than of more complete versions of films that we've seen in truncated versions and so, better prints. Yeah, yeah, it better with better print quality. So, um, so for example, um, I, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, Alice. Um, Alice solves the puzzle, uh, which is a perfectly entertaining film as we usually see it. But usually we see it with all the bootlegging gags taken out because we're seeing the, the re-edited version that was shown in the 30s. In fact, uh, there was a whole bootlegging thing going on in the 20s uh, during the time of Prohibition. And there are gags built on that in Alice Solves the Puzzle. Uh, the bear who was the, who was, who eventually evolved into Pig Leg Pete in the sound films, starts out as bootleg Pete in Alice Solves the Puzzle, and he is explicitly uh, smuggling liquor into the country, and at one point in the film, Julius gets drunk on it. Um, you, there is a, uh, a commonly known version of the film that, that cuts out all of that material, but uh, but the, the treat is to find one of these complete versions that has all of the alphabet stuff still left in. What, what do you think of these films that you know are coming from what we tr consider to be a, a really pure source, Disney, but having all of these alcohol and and you know smoking references and things like that? Did did you ever look at that and say, "Wow, I, I you know I can't believe they did that"? You're, you're yeah. getting dangerously close to one of my soapboxes. <laughs> I was going to say that we were never surprised. We were always surprised to discover how distorted of Disney is from those who were brought up from Disney the Family Man in the 50s that one of my favorite things to say is consider Fantasia and how few of that how little of that film could survive the kind of moral police that work today. You have nudity, you have uh, creationists going nuts because of his take on evolution. Um, Time and time again, you discover him uh, crossing taboos, but in such a charming way that it never occurs to you that there's something rather 
unorthodox about this. Now it's not at all surprising that he should take on bootlegging and alcohol and the like. He starts his animation career satirizing uh, Kansas City corruption. And he's always uh, been interested in tweaking and in and satirizing, mm -hmm. and some of the satirizing can be quite pointed. My my version of that is is that this whole idea of Disney as an exponent of family entertainment, which usually translates as kiddie entertainment, right, uh, really gets started in the 1950s when they get into television and when they open Disneyland. Now, in the Eisenhower 50s, it made good business sense to do that, uh, but it's come back to bite them more than once since then, and. It's, uh, I think it's worth noting that up until the 50s, that that was never a consideration. They were making movies for people, period. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's why uh, a lot of these films of Disney's that, that deserve to be taken seriously, many times are not taken seriously because people are looking for them to be uh, nothing but pure, wholesome, escapist entertainment. In fact, he's a, he's a real artist and he's working in the same world that other real artists are working in. And it's just more a sign of the time than anything else, right? Yeah, I think so. All right. Looks like uh, Russell's taking off. Thank yeah. you very much for your Thank time. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to no problem. Oh, no really? problem. <laughs> You've written several books. You started with Walt in Wonderland and then did Silly Symphonies, and now you're moving on to uh, Snow White and Pinocchio. Are you, have you found it easier to do, uh, to do books of a later age or a more recent time period in time versus the Walton Wonderland series just because of the, the, the material, more materials readily available through the Walt Disney Archives and other sources? Um, I would say yes and no. I, I, I think that, that um, one thing balances another. I, I, I think that if there's less material, then there's just less material, and, and you have to be more creative in, in making something out of it. If there's more material, then, then the heavy lifting comes in dealing with all of the material that there is. Um, but uh, in any case, it's, it's pretty much, I would say it's pretty much equivalent. Um, the, when, when we, really, uh, the Walt in Wonderland, the, the silent film book that, that Russell and I started out doing together. That was really the first extended research that either of us had done at the archives. I had done some articles and I think Russell had too. Um, but but Walt in Wonderland was, was a step up as far as the magnitude of the project. So, uh, so in that case, because we were dealing with films that were in the public domain, we really started by going to sources like the Library of Congress and, and the Museum of Modern Art before we got to the Disney Archives so that we would have as solid a background as we could before we started there. So, and, and, and really, in, in that sense, uh, no two projects are exactly alike because you, you know, it, it, it's all a matter of what you're dealing with, uh, what kind of material is relevant to it, and uh, and how much of that material has been preserved and in what way. So, so no two are really alike. With uh, South of the Border with Disney, um, you know, a lot of my research for that was at the Disney Archives. 
and uh, but because the government was involved in the Good Neighbor project, I also went to the National Archives in Washington, and there was material there. And because Nelson Rockefeller was the original coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, uh, I wound up going to the Rockefeller Archives in New York State. And every one of those places had materials that were not in any of the others. Wow. So it, it wound up being sort of like a giant jigsaw puzzle with, with pieces spread all over the country that had not been assembled in 60 years. And, uh, and, and that had a kind of fascination of its own. But, but again, I think that each project is different. And, and so the research involved in it uh, is, is also necessarily uh, different. So uh, I, I'm kind of wandering off of the question you asked, but, but that's... But that's, that's the best answer I can give you, is that it hasn't necessarily been a continuum from something difficult to something easy. It, it's, it's more been just each project changing the whole landscape so that you start all over again. That works. Now, earlier in your lecture, you were talking about the fact that Pinocchio was uh, right at the pinnacle of Disney uh, animation. And why is that? Go ahead and talk about that. Well, because uh, you're, you're, there, there are two uh, ways to answer that. One is that it's the culmination of this incredible decade at the Disney Studio in which, uh, in which there were explosions of creativity going on all the time. They really defined an art form and, and, and reached uh, a peak level of brilliance and perfection in that art form in an incredibly short space of time. So, so one answer to your, to your question is that it, it is the culmination of all of these wonderful things that had been happening all through the 1930s. Uh, the other side of the coin is, why didn't they keep it going? Mm -hmm. And that was out of necessity. Um, Pinocchio comes at the end of a period in which seemingly nothing could hold Walt back. Um, unfortunately, that couldn't last forever. And uh, in 1940, he was right around the corner from the strike and from the and from the events of World War II. And um, and, and there was also the fact that not all of the films he made were as wildly successful as Snow White had been, which I think was, was a major disappointment, too. Um, so all of those factors combined to create an environment where he didn't have the freedom to, to go wildly extravagant with uh, his, his production plans. There were things that could hold him back. Now, I think he made very creative use of those circumstances. Uh, I, I, I still think that he inevitably tended to land on his feet no matter what happened. But, uh, as we were saying earlier, inside the museum, um, uh, Dumbo is one of his responses to that. Now, anybody who looks at the two films side by side can see that, that Dumbo is made on a much more modest scale than Pinocchio. But I don't think anybody would deny that, that Dumbo is a great film. It's, it's, uh, it, it goes back to the basic strengths of, of the Disney Studio, which were strong storytelling and brilliant character animation, but without a lot of the, the gorgeous frills that, that make uh, Pinocchio and Fantasia 
such rich visual experiences. Um, so, so it is it is evident that Walt was able to work with these reduced circumstances and still do wonderful things with them. But, but as far as a film with just the sheer visual lavishness and, and sumptuousness of Pinocchio, that's the reason why I think we didn't get any more of those. And at this point in time, I think it's unlikely that we will. Okay, now when, you, when you're talking about the lavishness of Pinocchio, you're talking about the fact that each of the, the backgrounds that they created for the, uh, the movie were just pieces of art in themselves, right? That's part of what I'm talking about. Okay. And, and there's also uh, these, these layers of, of extra luxury that come from all of the brilliant uh, effects animation and the photographic effects that, that were used for it. You had mentioned that, that, that this was their first use of effects animators. I, I hope I didn't say that, and if I implied that, then I apologize. Um, the the effects animation department had actually been around since uh, maybe the early 30s, um, meaning the effects animators who specialized in water and smoke and fire and, and any kind of, of movement like that in a scene that didn't uh, qualify as character animation. Uh, this this had been developed as a separate department in, in the Disney Studio as early as 1932 or three. Uh, but what I what I did uh, mean to get to get over in there was that uh, by the time of Pinocchio, the effects animation department had developed to a point of just incredible sophistication, and uh, and you had artists who could specialize in one particular branch of effects animation. So, so we were talking in there about Sandy Strobel, who, who really specialized in water. And, uh, and that may sound funny to one who hasn't done it, but, but this was a guy who made a serious, concentrated study of how water moves. So splashes, ripples, waves, uh, foam, uh, currents. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these were the stuff of his work, and he... Uh, and he really uh, kept improving his technique and kept watching films of water and, and going to the beach and watching the waves come in and so on until he, he could uh, depict it in a, an incredibly sophisticated way. And it's, it's a measure of, of the skill of, of him and, and many others like him that uh, their effects pass almost unnoticed by audiences. They are accepted as natural uh, expressions of water so much that an audience tends not to think about them and keep their attention focused on the animated characters, which is the way it's supposed to be. Right, so you, you look at the film and you see that Pinocchio is being animated in front of the ocean right. when in fact there was no real ocean involved. Somebody actually had to draw all right, of that. Right, and it's, and it's a measure of uh, the, the, the skill that they put into it that you accept that naturally without even thinking about it and go on. Very good. Yeah. Everyone, or most people have heard about the nine old men. Again, going back to what you were saying, one of the reasons Pinocchio may have been so great is that it was at this crucial time when the nine old men were the, the nine young upstarts, but you still had these tremendous talents like Bill Tyler and Freddie Moore. Um, who are some of those, besides those two, who are some of the other figures that most Disney 
fans might not know or, or realize some of the people who were behind the scenes who were working at the studio who really contributed to the success of Pinocchio, Snow White, Grim Natwick, pe people that, you know, you, everyone knows Frank and Ollie and Ward especially. Uh, you ask them about the nine, they can they can at least name those three. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, because they again they were they were sort of professional legends uh, later on in life. Well, um, we were we were getting into that in there because um, because I I like to recognize the the sort of wave of animation artists that came before the ones we know as the nine old men. Uh, because during the 1930s, yeah, Fred Moore, uh, Bill Teitla, Norm Ferguson, Hamilton or Ham Lusk. Uh, Teehee? Well, not as an animator, uh, but Teehee was very important he, he, as, as a character designer and, and story man, but, um, and, and in fact director for some parts of Pinocchio. Um, but there was, during the 1930s, of course, Art Babbitt was still one of the good guys. And he was, you know, uh, all, all personal differences aside, he was a great animator. He was a brilliant animator. And in fact, he makes one of the great contributions to Pinocchio as the animator of Geppetto. Um, which, when you think about it, is not an easy character uh, to work with. You know, up, up till then, you had really cartoony characters like Mickey Mouse. You had characters like Snow White who were a whole different category because, you know, not realistic human beings, but but convincing human beings. Mm -hmm. Geppetto is kind of a middle ground between the two. He's he's got some of the principles that they that they used in characters like Snow White and the Prince, and yet there is some comic exaggeration there too, like you would find in in the purely cartoony characters. And then of course there's there's Jiminy Cricket and, and Pinocchio who are, are unquestionably cartoon characters. But Geppetto is kind of in that no man's land and it's not just any animator that could have pulled that off. Yeah, it's pretty difficult to do. Yeah, so I think that, that Babbitt, um, that may be one of his finest moments at the studio. Um, uh, Bill Tightla, of course, is, is doing brilliant animation of uh, Stromboli that's this this larger than life dynamic character but then at the same time Pinocchio becomes this kind of turning point where these younger artists who are eventually going to be the nine old men start to step into those roles so Milt Kahl in particular uh, becomes a really important player at this time uh, he was the one you know, a, a big part of the problem they had getting Pinocchio underway was finding a design for Pinocchio that would work so that he would be convincing as a wooden puppet, but also be appealing enough as a character to carry the lead role in the film. And, uh, and Call was the artist who solved that problem. Uh, he was the guy who came up with the design that was used uh, for Pinocchio and in fact animated a number of, of, his, of his major scenes. Uh, Ward Kimball, of course, was another one as, as the supervising animator of Jiminy Cricket. And um, despite the story that he liked to tell in later years that he didn't enjoy the experience and hated the character, uh, you can see him putting everything he's got into this character and, um, and supervising what was actually a, a relatively large crew of artists who, who worked on Jiminy Cricket. He, uh, he he was he was the, the go-to guy, second only to uh, 
sequence directors and Walt himself. So, uh, so it's a, a definite turning point for him. Uh, Frank and Ollie both had moments of their own. But again, they're, they're mixing in with these, these veterans who have been there since the early 30s, like Norm Ferguson, who is in charge of the fox and cat. So, so Pinocchio is kind of uniquely positioned at a point where you get this changing of the guard, and you're getting the best from both sides. Now, you mentioned uh, during your speech earlier that uh, Pinocchio was actually originally a serial. Yeah, yeah. The, the author, Collodi, um, wrote it. Uh, as a story for children in a periodical, so so episodes would would appear uh, from from one issue to the next, which accounts for some of the uh, the sort of epic nature of the story. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't have a clear cut beginning and middle and end. It goes through lots of twists and turns before it finally gets to the end. I was going to say, is is this one of the stories, or is this a combination of of the entire serial? Uh, it's it's a combination, and um, and it's it's interesting to note that the story is is very very different uh, from the Disney film. And in fact, uh, one of the interesting uh, side notes about the film is that Collodi's nephew actually pressured the Italian government to sue the Disney studio uh, after the film came out uh, for, in his words portraying Pinocchio so that he could easily be mistaken for an American. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but nothing came of that, and in fact, uh, this, as you know, this, this happened at a very tricky time in world history because we were just on the eve of World War II, and in fact the war was already in progress in Europe. Right. And, um, and, and so this was a, a delicate time for relations with, with the Italian government, but in fact you find that uh, that the Disney studio was always the exception, that, that the Italian government was always eager to encourage uh, crosstalk between the Italian public and, and the Disney studio because the, the Disney studio's films were so popular there. And so uh, they were, they expressed on an official level uh, uh, a level of appreciation for being honored by having their national story uh, made the subject of a Disney film. You mentioned something as well that uh, actually rather terrified me. Uh, you said that Jiminy in the original story didn't exactly live too long? That's right, that's right. The talking cricket in the original story um, gets uh, smashed against the wall by Pinocchio in, in chapter 4 after delivering a little lecture on, on being a good boy and staying at home. Um, now it's 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 not the end of the cricket in the story because again it's a serial story so the ghost of the cricket uh, reappears three times later in the story but but yeah he's uh, he, he's at, at most a supporting character and as we know um, he was transformed into Jiminy Cricket in, in the film and becomes a leading character and the narrator of the story and kind of the voice of the story so um, He's, that, that's actually a pretty good uh, representative example of the fact that almost everything that you see in the film is based on something in the story. Uh, the only real uh, major exceptions, I think, are Figaro the cat and Cleo the fish. Uh, there's nothing in the story about Geppetto having pets. But 
as far as I can think right now, everything else in the film is somehow based on something that happens in the story. And and no, not just in one episode, but but episodes scattered all the way through the story. In the entire time. Um, but adapted in a very very creative way to the medium of animation, which of course is what an artist does. You take your source material, but then you apply it to the medium that you're working in. Mm-hmm. We know about the soup sequence and, and uh, Snow White being dropped. Were there any sequences in Pinocchio that didn't make it off the drawing board that were originally planned for the film? Oh, lots of them, yeah. And in fact, with both Snow White and Pinocchio, um, I find that it's, it, it, it's, not, it's misleading to talk about an original version of the story as opposed to the finished version because in both cases, there was never just one discrete version of the story that they started with. Uh, both of them were just endlessly shifting masses of story ideas that were uh, tweaked and fine-tuned and pulled out and put in and, and eventually, finally assumed their, their form uh, that we know in the finished film. In the case of Pinocchio, oh, there were any number of things. Um, at one point when when Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket uh, escaped from Pleasure Island, uh, the coachman is going to see them leaving and open up uh, a series of cages and release sharks to go after them. Wow. And, and he was, he was uh, really concerned about letting them get away because if anybody ever did escape, he'd be in big trouble with the law. True. So, uh, so he uh, pursued them he set the sharks on them, and he and he went after them. And in fact, uh, there was at at one point there was an idea that uh, they would get back to their home, and the fox and cat would go after them again, and instead would be intercepted by the law, and you'd wind up seeing the fox and cat be hauled off to jail. Hmm. Um, there were. It's, and and there was also a point where they were going to get back to Geppetto's workshop, and and it was winter time, and everything was was happening uh, surrounded by snow. Uh, and then and then that idea was changed, and, and, and you don't see any snow in the in the finished film. So yeah, I mean I mean there were there were scenes of there, there was a scene of Pinocchio being taunted by other boys when he was on his way to school, uh, who made fun of him and. and tormented him because he was different from them. He was, he was made of wood. Um, there are, I, I didn't come prepared with the list, but, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are, there are others that I'm not thinking of right now, but examples of ideas that were going to be used and, and ultimately didn't get used. Did any of them make it as far as pencil tests and all that? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, one of the famous stories about Pinocchio is is that they got so far along with production and then Walt scrapped everything that had been done up to that time and started over again. Uh, anytime you have a well-known story uh, related to the making of a film, I get a little bit suspicious. <laughs> um, because it very often happens that, that the well-known story is not quite the way things actually happen. I'm still working at getting to the bottom of that one, but it is clear that some animation was done and then not used. And uh, I mean, we can we can actually document that in some cases because 
I've, I've been through all of the exposure sheets for Pinocchio at the Animation Research Library, and I can tell you that's a big job. <laughs> I bet. But, but I mean, it, it's worth it because you can learn a lot that way. But just in a very few cases, somebody accidentally uh, left the, the original exposure sheet for a given scene in the same envelope with the exposure sheet that they eventually used for the finished scene, and you can see what the differences are. And so they forgot to take the old one out, they're supposed to throw it away, and they... Exactly, okay. exactly. And the, and the only thing is, it's, it's got the same scene number on it, and so it gets preserved. And, and in some cases, the story has shifted so much in the meantime that the same scene number actually pertains to a different part of the sequence. <laughs> um, but, but because of the number, it accidentally got left in the folder. Now, was, um, I, I know that the multiplane camera was used a lot in Snow White. Uh, was it used at all in Pinocchio? Oh, absolutely. Um, but uh, in addition to that, and, and, and again, one of the things I love about this is that they come up with this marvelous instrument, the multiplane camera, that can give you this wonderful, lifelike <laughs> feeling of depth in, uh, in, in Snow White. And then, then immediately start thinking, oh boy, what can we do that the multiplane can't handle? <laughs> and so uh, they, they wound up doing this, this spectacular opening scene for the sequence, uh, the morning after Pinocchio comes to life, of the camera moving over the rooftops, off to one side, veering off to an angle, going down into the street and through an archway, and then down further that, that same street which um, is just dazzling to see on the screen and could not have been done with the standard multiplane camera. And that was the one that was filmed uh, horizontally on the soundstage with these, these big, these giant panes of glass, which were also much larger than the ones that were used on the multiplane. So the reason they couldn't use the multiplane was because it was too restrictive an area? Uh, yeah, and, and I, I, I hesitate. Were different. Yeah, I hesitate to use the word restrictive with regard to the multiplane because it, it could uh, it, it could do so many things. However, they made a point of coming up with with uh, a shot that was so wildly creative and ambitious that uh, that the multiplane was rendered restrictive. Okay. It, it was restrictive only in that context, in that they were they were doing things that nobody ever imagined. Uh, a camera could do in an animated film. So I wasn't involved in that, though, was it? I, um, was, I was gone at this point, right? Right, right. He comes nah. back to the studio in 1940, and by that time, Pinocchio is in the can. Yeah, because my understanding, I had developed a, a, a horizontal uh, multi-plane camera on a horizontal plane. I, I, and this seems yeah. like a combination of both. I, I, I keep hearing that, and I'd like to know more about that. And in fact, there had been other uh, developments along those lines. You may know that the Fleischer Studio had their, what they called their setback system, where they built a giant turntable and actually built three-dimensional sets on it and then put cell animation in front of those sets really? for, for moving scenes. Yeah, yeah, you see that in, in some of the shorts that they made in the 30s, which in, in a sense is the opposite of the multiplane in that uh, it's all about lateral movement instead of depth movement. But, but for those lateral movements, you can actually see buildings turning in perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, really interesting stuff. But, um, but yeah, iWorks 
is uh, the, the, the popular story is that he built one out of the rear end of the Chevy and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and did his own multiplane effects with that. Um, so, and, and again, this is like this is like other instances where uh, you know other people had made sound cartoons before Steamboat Willie. Other people had made color cartoons before Flowers and Trees. But Walt demonstrated over and over again that it's not about doing things first; it's about doing things best. And uh, and when he makes a film like Steamboat Willie with this, this just beautifully creative use of sound that, that that's it, it's it, the sound isn't just sitting there it, it, it's it, it's used in a, a way that delights the audience right um, it makes such a huge impact that people tend to forget that there were any sound cartoons before that uh, same way with with almost everything else that's going on here you know he he, he isn't the first one to happen onto the idea but he is the one who makes the most of the idea and then goes on and builds on top of that. You said that the that, that shot that they shot horizontally was very, very involved. That sounds rather expensive. It was, it was. Uh, I've I've heard I've heard more than one uh, estimate of how much it cost, but the most reliable figure I've heard is forty eight thousand dollars. For a single that's, shot? That's right. For a shot that runs less than a minute on the screen, and, and it's and that's nineteen thirty nine dollars. That's uh, that's that's when they, it, that that meant a good deal more than it does now. I was going to say that sounds more like what they could produce an entire short for. Uh, I yeah, at that point they could have. That was almost enough to have made two short subjects. Two short subjects. Wow. Yeah. And it's it, it's really when you start looking at the mechanics of it, they divided it up into six parts, and and each part had to be planned and engineered separately but designed to fit together because it was all shot in one continuous take. So it just, they just, did they actually uh, pull that in real time or was that frame by frame by frame by oh, frame? Oh, it was frame by frame. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because, because when you think about it, you're, you're going uh, past uh, chimney stacks and through archways which are painted on glass. Right. So, uh, so as as with the multiplane, you're you're pulling up close enough that that it moves in perspective, and then once it's out of the picture, then that plane is removed and you go on to the next setup. Okay. Now you mentioned something about uh, miniatures in the uh, in the Fleischer uh, cartoons. Did they use any miniatures on the Disney lot at this time for animation? Uh, you know, matter of fact, they did. I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Um, because uh, we, we were talking about the, the use of wash-off relief cells. Uh, now, your listeners may, may know about these already, but, but briefly, wash-off relief cells were a way of uh, photographically rendering an object on clear material, which was then used as a cell. Uh, so you could shoot uh, an object, let's say a miniature, against a completely neutral background and in effect come out with a cell with that object on it and then you could paint it just the way you would any ordinary cell and use it in the scene hmm. as, as you normally would. So in this case, uh, this was used in more than one way, but, but one of my favorite ways is that they built a miniature of Stromboli's wagon 
built a little sort of obstacle course for it to roll over so that it would have rough ground and you could see the wheels moving up and down. To simulate the cobblestone? Right, or, 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 the, or, the, or the dirt, dirt road or whatever, okay. whatever, wherever it was. And then photographed it and blew up each frame of the film onto one of these wash-off relief cells. Then it was painted like any ordinary cell and used in, in the setup where you see uh, Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket escaping from the back of Stromboli's wagon. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's an actual photographed miniature wagon that you're seeing rolling away from the camera as they jump out of it and, and, and make their way down the road. So they just painted over it so you couldn't see it? You know, or or was that actually really a, a that that was that was the print that was that was the positive. So, so they just painted around it. Then. No, no, they painted it itself. Oh, they painted okay. the actual object with the colors of the wagon. Oh, interesting. It it, it became the cell. Hmm. And then and then there was another cell level on top of that with with Pinocchio and Jiminy on it. <laughs> and these things, of course, had to be worked out in a very very intricate way beforehand. Yeah, they had to really know where it was supposed to go. Yeah, yeah. Wow. The archive still has the model, doesn't it? I believe it. I believe they have. I believe they have. Two, two questions about uh, special effects here. The first one, uh, you mentioned something about uh, shadows and, and using a double exposure. Now, that may be a little too geeky for, for the audience, but briefly, what, what is a double exposure for a shadow? Well, it's, it's just geeky enough for me. <laughs> um, uh, basically, it was, it was a technique that they came up with about the middle of the 1930s. Uh, up till that point, depicting shadows under animated characters had been a problem, because if you painted them solid black, uh, that was very distracting. Uh, they, tried, they tried using a shadow paint it would be sort of gray and sort of transparent, but that tended to streak, and, and, and that was really distracting. So, um, so what they came up with was this idea of animating the scene, uh, animating the shadows on a separate cell level and making them solid black, and then when it came time to shoot the scene, uh, you would shoot the whole thing at 40% exposure, let's say. Mm -hmm. We're just picking a number out of the air. Sure. But what you'd, let's say you'd shoot at a 40% exposure with those shadows in place. Then you'd wind the film back to exactly the same frame you started on, and it was very important to be exactly in sync with where you started. Mm -hmm. And go through the whole scene again at 60% exposure without the shadow. Okay. So that meant that everything in the scene got 100% exposure except the shadow and that was double exposed which was mostly transparent at that's that right point. and it became convincingly transparent yeah. and and you could still see the the background painting through it as you would through a normal shadow right a composite without without being a composite in some ways. yeah now uh, again that that may be geeky but let me tell you it's only the beginning that was that was just the basis yeah because as always you know, Walt looks at a new effect and doesn't just say, that's great. He looks at it and says, that's great. Now what else can we do? <laughs> and so they start building on that practice and using it for other things. When, uh, for example, when uh, Bashful blushes in Snow White, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're making a transition from his normal skin color to this, to this deep red uh, done the same way. 
Uh, so they would do it 10%, 20%, 30%? Well, in, in, in that case, they would change the exposure. And, that, of course, they had to keep meticulous track of, of, of uh, the levels of exposure each time. But you, you would phase out the one color and phase in the other, Ugh. making sure that each frame got a total of 100% exposure. <laughs> and, and I mean, it went on beyond that. And, and uh, according to um, one of the uh, effects uh, gurus at the studio who gave a lecture at the time, they did some shots that had as many as five or six exposures. Wow. It got really elaborate. That is just way too geeky. <laughs> well, you wonder, you wonder how animated films were made before computers. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and the answer is that the, that this resulted in, in films. I mean, I don't have anything against computer animation, but I've never seen a computer animated film that, for me, had the sheer beauty of a film like Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, you know, part, part of the joy of it is seeing this gorgeous moving art form on the screen. Now one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Pinocchio is, is all of the scenes underwater and I've always questioned how ex I mean did they actually go in and plan and and hand warp all of the scenes to make it look like they were actually underwater no, or uh, no actually uh, they they did them as they normally would do any character animation against whatever the background was, but okay. then they would add uh, distortion glasses on top of that. Distortion glasses? Yes, they, they would have a sheet of glass that was purposely uh, distorted so that when you look through it, like, like looking through um, a window that's, that's not made of a very good grade of glass that seems to distort what, whatever you're looking at through Old it. Coke bottle. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, the, the, the Coke bottle syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, or the windows in this building next to us, probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, uh, the, the studio, again, developed this to a really sophisticated level and, and made their own distortion glasses uh, for precisely ground for specific effects. Uh, and, and there were any number of variations to this. Uh, for Snow White, when she sings, I'm wishing, Mm -hmm. and you're looking at the reflections in the well. They made special glasses with ripples on them that were made out of lacquer, hardened lacquer that was, that was put onto the glass to represent ripples. And then those were animated. Wow. Just like in, like cell animation would be done. Good talk. We just watched the film all the way through. <laughs> it's a good picture, isn't it? Yes. It looks great on the... Uh, Screen in there too. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just razor sharp. Yeah. So somebody just asked me, where did the name Gemini come from? Well, the answer is it was, was a popular expression. It was it was JC. A, a polite expletive for Jesus Christ. It was like saying, "Gosh darn, uh, Jiminy Cricket was was an expression that was used." And in fact, the dwarfs say it twice in Snow White. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I'm sure, ever since 1940, has seemed like shameless self-promotion, but nobody was thinking about that at the time. Of yeah, yeah. Sell your family, friends, and coworkers all know you're the person to ask about planning their next Disney trip. But if you get excited about anything Disney-related, they roll their eyes. Well, that's just rude.
You know what you need. You need to hang out with some people who appreciate Disney the same way you do. And here's your chance. It's DPN Westfest 2010. The Disney Podcast Network invites you to join the fun April 29th through May 2nd as Disney fans from around the world gather to spend some quality time together in Anaheim, California at the park that started it all, Disneyland. There will be special meets hosted by DPN hosts and fans, plenty of opportunities to make lifelong memories, and, backed by popular demand, the DPN Westfest Banquet. To find out more about DPN Westfest, go to dpnwestfest.com. Go ahead, schedule those vacation days, make your hotel reservations, and book your flights for DPN Westfest April 29th through May 2nd. Because, well, face it, you need to hang out with some people who are normal. And we're back. <laughs> so... Thank you, JB, for for coming out here and for sitting on the porch and having a conversation with us. I I have been enjoying this quite a bit. Good, good. We we definitely enjoy it, and I know I've I've emailed you and said I'd like to do this as often as you would like to. So every time you're in the area, let's do this. Uh, one last question about Pinocchio and and actually just the Disney Studio in general. At this point, they had gone through some very large films that were going to be, you know landmarks what really had they learned at this point what was the big thing that they had learned so far in in animation that they that was really going to pay off for the rest of their lives um well there there are a number of possible answers to that but i think to me the most important thing is that uh, they had developed the craft of character animation uh, to a point that had never existed before. Now, I don't want to. It, it's there are there are cases where people are so anxious to promote something that they do it by running down everything else. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that there had never been good animation before Walt came along, um, because Windsor McKay, for one, had done had made some brilliant animated films. So. So, and, and of course, Felix the Cat had been a very, very popular cartoon star in the 20s, and, and, and the great Felixes are still very entertaining today. What's different about Disney is that the Disney studio um, made a very conscious practice of analyzing what made an appealing character on the screen, and then developing that and, and building on it. Um, personality animation was, was the, uh, the label that they used for it. And I think a lot of people see the great shorts of the 30s, uh, did then and do now, and enjoy them without recognizing that that is a big component of what makes them so appealing. Um, the Three Pigs and the Wolf, uh, of course, were a gigantic hit in 1933 and are still known today. Um, because they are distinct individuals. They, they, they move and act. They really give acting performances in a distinctly individual way. Um, in, uh, in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you had uh, a textbook example of that in, in the Seven Dwarfs, because here you have seven characters that are all about the same height and have similar appearances. And you have to know the instant you look at one of them, which one you're looking at. They pulled it off brilliantly, and I think, again, as with the effects animation, I think one um, 
indication of how successful they were at that is the fact that people fell in love with individual dwarfs and never thought about that technical aspect of what it had taken to bring them to life. Mm -hmm. They were just characters. They were people. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, so I would say if, if you had to isolate one particular thing in animation that, um, that the Disney artists had discovered in that, in that decade, and not only discovered but really created, they were the ones who really, um, with, with Walt in the lead, um, created a real form of art, of conscious art, out of animation. I think that would be it. That's, that's the thing. Um, you know, with, with Pinocchio, we've been talking about the lavishness of the visual effects, and, and it is just overwhelming to behold when you see it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't, by, by dwelling on that, I don't mean to take anything away from the character animation, because in the end, uh, what you remember is this compelling story and the characters that play it out. And maybe a song or two. Oh uh, yeah, 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 little little things like that. But right. but but it is it, it's it's never all of this technique uh, doesn't happen at the expense of the story and the characters and the entertaining experience of watching the film. So is there anything about this that we haven't covered that you think uh, you know would be important to know? Oh, there may be dozens of things, but I. Uh, my my Pinocchio research is still in progress, okay. and, and I'm still I'm still learning new things about it all the time. Um, and we could probably have another conversation, uh, okay. the length of this one, uh, about about other aspects of it. And, and in fact, if you want to, we can do that sometime. Okay, but, so we'll label this one to be continued. Then. Yeah, yeah, Pinocchio Part One. There, there we go. Now, uh, I, last time we were talking to you, you had just released uh, South of the Border with Disney. Uh, do you have anything else that, uh, you know, the, the other books that you have, matter of fact, I'm going to be giving away one of your other books, the, the, Walt, uh, in the Walt in Wonderland book. And I'm really kicking myself for not having brought it so that the two of you could have signed it. <laughs> but um, do you have anything currently that you would want the listeners to know about? Um, well, the newest uh, thing that I have at this point is that that's that's out there is still south of the border with Disney. Okay, um, I'm uh, I'm putting I'm trying to put the finishing touches on a book about the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, as it turns out, there are lots of finishing touches, and <laughs> and so and and I want it to be as good as it can be. Um, so it's now looking as if it's going to be released sometime around the 75th anniversary of the film, which will be December 2012. Oh, that's convenient. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I, I had thought to maybe try to get something out before that, but as you know, the company loves anniversaries, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and in a way, that's, it gives me a little more time to make sure that everything is dotted and crossed, because I want this, as with everything, I want this to be as good as it can. Now, I was going to say you might you might come across something uh, that you didn't know or something that was recently discovered um, in regards to Snow White that you know. And, and as a matter of fact, um, if well, we, we we might as well get into this just just a little bit. Sure. Um, the uh, the cutting records for the soundtrack of Snow White were just recently rediscovered at the Disney Studio. Hmm. They had been hidden and forgotten 
for more than 70 years. Wow. But they turned up. And um, So what are, what are cutting records? Well, at the Disney Studio, cutting records were uh, detailed accounts of every day that there was a recording session or a live-action filming session for one of the animated features. They, mm. they were the equivalent of a daily production report at uh, a live-action studio. And as you can imagine, there is a wealth of material there, a, a wealth of information that, uh, that we just didn't have before. So this is, yeah, this is an example of why it, it, it's a good idea to take a little extra time with the book, because mm -hmm. if uh, the book had been carved in stone and then these things had been discovered, then I'd really be kicking myself. Mm -hmm. But as it is, we can, we can make use of this new information and, and again, make the book that much more thorough and complete. Good, good. Okay, so uh, fall 2012. That's, that's the plan. Uh, we're hoping. Yeah. And, and for now, uh, Three Caballeros, uh, the, the uh, south of the border with Disney, is still the good one. And, <laughs> and we'll, get, uh, we'll get Walt in Wonderland out to somebody at this point. Uh, as a matter of fact, why don't, why don't, why don't I have you pick? Um, why don't you go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 15? Uh, do you want me to, to say the number? Yeah, or yeah. So I had to pick a number between one and fifteen. Mm -hmm. Let's make it uh, eleven. Okay. So the eleventh person to email me at uh, at podcast at window to the magic dot com and say that they're interested in the Walt in Wonderland book will receive the copy of the book. So nobody will know what number they are until I announce, and uh, and that will have been picked by you. So. And I can vouch that this contest is strictly on the level and, and nothing has been fixed. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Leo, Leo Holzer is the winner of the book. Oh, wait. <laughs> but, uh, okay, well, once again, thank you very much for joining us and for putting up with all of the motorcycles and vans and people and, hey, look, a motorcycle. But that's, uh, that's part of the, uh, the experience of, of being out here at this wonderful museum, so... Uh, do you do you have a plan to be out here again fairly soon? I plan to be out here again whenever I can come up with a good excuse. Good, so, good. Okay. So. Well, we'll uh, we'll be here when you are, and uh, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this, and I'll look forward to that. Good. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. I would like to thank you all for listening to A Window to the Magic as we continue our fifth year of bringing you the best audio adventures from throughout the wonderful world of Disney. As always, I would like to thank the Window to the Magic DVD of the Month Club members, author J.B. Kaufman and Russell Merritt, those who have purchased the Window to the Magic podcast app, Carl Sussman's Love Your Geek, you can find it on Amazon and Michael Mofoda's Bluestone Creative Group for helping to make the magic happen. We appreciate your feedback, so be sure to email or call us soon. Email us at podcast at windowtothemagic.com. Call us at 206-984-9886. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WTTM. And you can add us as your friend on Facebook. Remember to visit iTunes to subscribe to the Window to the Magic family of podcasts and to purchase the Window to the Magic podcast app for iPhone and iPod Touch. Just search WTTM in iTunes and you will find everything there. Be sure to join us again next time as we continue to celebrate the Disney Sound Experience. And I might even do that listener feedback show that I've been talking about on Facebook and Twitter, if... 
I can get enough calls to the voicemail line. That's 206-984-9886. But for now, this has been A Window to the Magic, show number 235. And I'll see you next time. For those of you that are still listening, I have a small treat for you. I had mentioned that the show is sponsored by Carl Sussman's Love Your Geek, which is available on Amazon. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read the first chapter to you so that you can get an idea as to exactly what this book is all about. Chapter 1 is entitled, Do You Know Anyone Who Is Good With Computers? I'm at a party a small gathering of friends. The majority of these people are our close friends. However, there's a small peppering of other people, a bit outside the normal group, who were invited to add body count. Margaritas flow. Kids play loudly in the next room. Life is about as good as anyone could want. Then I hear it. It comes from one of the newcomers. We'll call her green eyes. She is talking to one of my close friends and she says, Hey, do you know anyone who's good with computers? She kills my margarita buzz instantly. My heart beats in my throat. I can actually hear a loud hissing sound in my ears. I know what's coming. Oh yeah, Carl's an expert. What I'd like to know is, what exactly constitutes naming me an expert? Did I take Computer Expert 101 in college? Did I go to some prestigious Expert in Computers PhD program? No, not the case. It's simply because I know more than they do. That one fact turns me into a quote-unquote expert. The first problem for the geek, you know, me, is how I should respond. If I smile and say, sure, how can I help? I open myself up for a full-time job without pay or benefits, free to this unknown person. As it turns out, I have more people that employ me under this contract than I can keep up with, so I'd rather not add to the roster. If I choose to tilt my head down, feigning shame or embarrassment, that doesn't work either, because then I simply show weakness, and weakness cries out for exploitation. Let them think you're a weak geek, and they will take you for a ride. Free work, a rapid transit job of things to do, just like passing traffic signals in the night. In this case, I just smile. The questions come rapid fire. It's just as if a large corporation lost their CEO, and the second-in-command thinks that he may have just found a real gem that can bail them out. Do you know PCs or Macs? It doesn't matter. They all have a mouse. Look, my mouse is acting funky. What's wrong with it? I'm always impressed with the way people describe their computer woes. In this case, her mouse is funky. 
I don't think very many people had computers with a mouse back in the 1970s, so I'm having a tough time imagining a mouse being funky. Having no choice, I ask in as dull and uninterested a voice as I can muster, uh, what do you mean by funky? At that moment, everyone in my little circle decides that this is a cue, as good a time as any to bow out. They can engage in a socially acceptable touch on the shoulder and point into the distance as if they see St. Patrick opening the gates just for them. Well, they say, would love to stay and chat, but we really have to go. I'm left with this person now, who up until a few moments ago was a complete and total stranger. Now, with her deep green eyes, she's staring at me, waiting for me to resolve her problem and get control over her funky mouse. I pick up my margarita. I figure I may as well try to get that buzz back. She, green eyes, explains that recently her mouse moves the cursor and then stops moving it, and then starts moving it again. My first thought, of course, is to ask if it moves when she moves the mouse and stops when she stops moving it, but I reconsider and realize the humor uh, would probably be lost on her. As it turns out, the problem was the mouse cable. They don't work too terribly well once the dog is chewed on them. Imagine that. So that would be chapter one of Carl Sussman's Love Your Geek. Carl has sponsored Window to the Magic, and if this chapter has been at all entertaining to you, and I'm sure, based on the fact that you're listening to this show, that you either are one of these people or know one of these people, please visit Amazon. You can visit there by going to http colon slash slash bit dot ly slash geekbook, g-e-e-k-b-o-o-k all one word. When you go there, make sure you purchase the book so that Carl knows that you find his book to be just as entertaining as I did. And if you do purchase the book, send an email into podcast at windowtothemagic.com telling me all about your experience, and I'll forward them on to Carl for you. Thanks for listening. I hope you appreciate this little plus, and we'll see you next week or so. Till then. Some days you eat the bear. And some days, the bear eats you. But always dress for the hunt! Kungaloo! Surround yourself with the magic. Oh!